Empire. Welcome to Making the Case, Crimes Against Kids. In this series, we dig deep into and help prevent the worst of the worst of criminal behavior, crimes against children. It's a tough subject, and you're going to hear and learn about the world of crimes against kids from our expert guests, from law enforcement, survivors of crime, their families, and from me. I'm Avery Mann. I spent 16 years fighting crime with the hit Fox TV show, America's Most Wanted, and five years at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Every day, thousands of crimes are being committed, and law enforcement just doesn't have the resources or the time to solve every case. Often, children are the target of criminals. And that's where my company comes in. SOS 360 Inc. provides expert training to anyone who works around children on how to screen and help detect who the bad guys are so they never get hired and never get to work around kids. What can you do right now to keep you and your loved ones and our kids safer? Find out on Making the Case, Crimes Against Kids. My guest today is the mother of three children, two girls and a boy. A native of New Mexico, Jayanne Sepich was proud to be raising the next generation in her home state, along with her husband, Dave. Jayanne and Dave were both astounded by everything their first child, Katie, did, starting with speaking in full sentences before she was even a year old. Katie was always the trendsetter for her younger siblings, Caroline and AJ. After completing her bachelor's degree in 2003, Katie decided to go back to get her MBA. While everything seemed to be going in the right direction for the Sepich family, nothing could prepare them for the horrible news they received on August 31st, 2003. That night, after meeting up with friends, Katie returned home alone, was attacked, abducted, and later found murdered just miles from her home. Despite the horrendous suffering, tragic pain, and deep loss that the entire family felt, Jayanne knew that working with police to find her daughter's killer would be her mission, and she was determined to get justice for Katie. What Jayanne did next is an unbelievable story of determination and love. Jan, just introducing you, uh, thinking about all that you've done since you lost Katie, it, it, it gives me goosebumps because I've known you for so long. Thank you so much for, for being here on my show. Thank you, Avery. I'm, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Please tell me about your family, the family that you created, and about your daughter, Katie. First of all, our family's always been very, very close. Um, Katie, like you, you described her beautifully. She was she was a trendsetter, and she was also we called her the firecracker. <laughs> she if, if she had a goal, she went after it, you know, as, as hard as she could, and she made things happen. And she was very bright, um, but she was just incredible. And I still miss her every day. It seems like Katie was really, really a, a, a special person, a special young woman and had lots of friends, outgoing. I've seen so many different videos of her now, you know, even from when I first met you and pictures and, and productions that have been done about everything that, that, that you, you've done in her memory. I know that the last conversation that you had with her was really, really, really special on that, on that Saturday. 
she'd been thinking a lot about love and marriage. And, and I know she went out that night and people go out, they meet up with their friends and she went out with her friends as well that night. But then you got a call the next morning to say that was that Katie was missing from one of her friends. And then later you got a call for, it was her roommate. And then, and then tell me about that call. Well, it was Labor Day weekend. Uh, we were getting ready to have a, a big party at our house. Our house was actually packed with out-of-town friends, and we had a lot of in-town friends on their way over, and the phone rang, and it was Katie's roommate, and she said, have you talked to Katie today? Um, I have to tell you, I woke up that morning with a terrible pain in my stomach. I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on, but as the day went on, I got more and more concerned about Katie because I normally talk to her sometime in the morning or at the very, you know, the very latest early afternoon. So uh, immediately we said, well, what's going on? And that's when she said, well, you know, we were at a friend's house last night and Katie got in a big argument with her boyfriend and just got so mad she stormed out to walk home didn't take her purse didn't take her phone didn't take her keys just stormed very out. unlike her right actually katie katie was pretty hot-headed i mean katie that doesn't surprise me um i i was surprised that she would do that so late at night that kind of you know, surprised me but it didn't surprise me that she got angry and left she you know she she was very strong-willed um but it no one had seen her and uh, Tracy said that she had called all of her friends she had even called the hospitals and no trace absolutely no trace okay. and she she left her her purse behind I mean most most people are you know we're glued to our phones and oh. she just left she had nothing with her so I imagine that you were you were calling her trying yes. to get her to respond yes and just was it going to voicemail was it just right to voicemail and she couldn't find her purse. Her, her friends later told me that she did look for it, but she couldn't find it. And she called her phone from another phone, and we were told that her boyfriend answered it and just kind of turned it off. I don't think he wanted her to leave, and he thought she wouldn't leave without her purse, so he was hiding it. Uh, but she was just determined. And she had driven there in her car, but because she couldn't find her purse, she couldn't find her keys. So she just decided to walk, and it was only about five blocks from there to her home in a very safe neighborhood. And then later that day, you received a call from police. Tell me about that call. Well, no, actually, as soon as we, you know, were worried about Katie, Dave jumped in his vehicle with his best friend and started driving to Las Cruces from Carlsbad, which is about a four-hour drive. And uh, when Tracy made that phone call, we told her to report Katie is missing. And when she made that phone call, the authorities realized that the body that had been found that morning by target shooters in the desert was most probably Katie. So four hours later, when Dave got there, uh, he was met at Katie's house by uh, the sheriff and a victim's advocate and a chaplain. And they told him that they had found a body that very much matched the description of Katie and he needed to go to the morgue to identify her. 
And where were you at this point? Were you still home with your 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 friends and relatives who were visiting? Right. I was at home uh, with all of my friends, and of course they were coming over anyway, but as soon as they heard there was something wrong, they really flooded over. And so I was surrounded by a great deal of love and support, which I still appreciate so much, but I was at home. When you're there and, and you find out this information, how do you even begin to process it when this is news about your own child? How, 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 what, what happened to you in that moment? Well, when I got that phone call from Tracy, I realized that's why I had that feeling, that horrible pain mm-hmm. in my solar plexus. And I turned to one of my friends that was visiting me and I said, Katie's dead. And she said, oh, Jan, don't, you know, don't be a drama queen. I said, no, I have this horrible feeling that I've never had before. And I, I, I think that that is the absence of her spirit on earth. And so I just knew immediately. And all of my friends were saying, you know, oh, no, no, she's just gone to someplace and she's fine. But I knew, I knew immediately. And then when Dave called, after he had identified her, he called and he said, Jan, her she's she's gone I identified her body and then you know then it was there was no doubt and I remember my first thought was how do I do this mm-hmm. how do I move on I, I don't know if I can do this and then my second thought was yes we will move on and we're going to keep this family together because I had heard statistics about families that break up after losing a child. And that was my next thought. We're going to keep this family together. Where were Caroline and AJ at the time when you received this news from Dave? Well, Caroline was at home. She was nine years old and she was at home with us. AJ was at the University of New Mexico. He had been there one week to the day when this happened. So he had just left home and we had to make sure that he had friends with him when we called and told him the news, we didn't want him to be alone. And AJ and Katie were so incredibly close. Mm-hmm. And he was shattered. He was absolutely shattered. So it was it was absolutely the most horrific thing that had ever happened in my life and in my family's life and to our friends and her friends. I know that when when Dave had to identify Katie's body and and hear some of the the speculation on on what police thought happened, you know, we we hear that um, in many cases where uh, people are killed, a child is killed. There, there's physical evidence like DNA that becomes so important, and we're going to be talking about that today as well. Do you think that in 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 crimes that are solved today, more of them are solved because of of DNA evidence? I think DNA evidence is incredibly important. And I'm so glad that now more than ever, you know, the authorities are looking for DNA in crimes and not just violent crimes and also mm-hmm. in property crimes. But I mean, I think authorities are actively looking for DNA now. And Yes, more and more crimes are being solved by DNA, as well as more and more innocent people are being exonerated by DNA. That's not the person that did it. That DNA does not match. And I think that is wonderful. So I I believe DNA is an incredible science, very accurate, 
It's, it's just the, you know, it's the best crime fighting and solving tool that we have. Uh, over the years, I've spent time with many crime victims and they've described the situation to me of not being able to focus or digest information that's being presented to them by police, investigators, prosecutors, and others because of just being in pure shock. Coming up next, Jan will tell us how Katie's killer was brought to justice, so don't go away. I'm Avery Mann. This is Making the Case, Crimes Against Kids. And my guest today is Jan Sepich, the mother of Katie Sepich, who was murdered at age 22 after coming home from meeting her friends. Jan, in so many cases that we did on America's Most Wanted, the victim's family was often really frustrated that police couldn't find the suspect, which is why you know we were trying to help them on the TV show. But in Katie's case, the main suspect was actually captured and caught in another way. Can you tell us about that? There were several suspects. Um, I think the the one that the police focused on the hardest in the beginning was her boyfriend. Uh, There Mm. was also uh, another murder that happened in Wisconsin that was so similar to Katie's in every way. Actually, I say murder, that it was not a murder. It was a rape, and they left her for dead, but she survived. Um, Katie's body had been set on fire, and this young woman had been set on fire. And so there was a a lot of speculation that perhaps these were the same people that killed Katie. And also, these people were both actually had lived in New Mexico. Um, So that was, you know, that was a speculation. But it turned out when we did finally get uh, DNA from them that they were, it was not a match. And and when they were looking at Katie's boyfriend, I'm guessing you may have known the family, another another Las Cruces family. How how soon was he eliminated as a suspect? He wasn't eliminated for about four months because he refused to cooperate with the police and he refused to give a DNA sample. And the only way they could compel him to do that was with probable cause, and they did not have probable cause. So it was a it was about four months after the murder that he finally uh, consented to give his DNA, and it didn't match the DNA profile that had been uh, extracted from uh, the skin and blood under Katie's fingernails, where she fought so hard for her life. But it didn't match when he finally consented to give his DNA. So that's when he was eliminated as a suspect, and he could have been eliminated, you know, immediately if mm-hmm. he. Had given it but he he was advised by his attorney not to do that yeah in so many cases um you know the the last person seen or being around someone who has been gone missing or murdered is considered a suspect and it it doesn't make sense to me why they wouldn't immediately give a sample i mean who would want that cloud of suspicion especially in such a violent crime um around them it it it, it really doesn't make sense but in the end the person who was who was was charged, he was already he was already serving time and, and could have gotten out. Correct? Yes, yes. Well, actually, what happened? He three months after he killed Katie, 
he broke into the home of two young women, and they managed to get in the bathroom with a cell phone and call the police, and he was apprehended for that crime. Um, They charged him with burglary, um, but at that time, it was illegal to take a DNA sample at the time of arrest, so they couldn't take it. And after he was convicted of that crime, several months later, uh, his father-in-law posted a $25,000 cash bond so he could remain free until sentencing, and he ran. He was in Mexico. He was, he was a Mexican national, and he was in Mexico during that time. He then came back to the United States and was apprehended because of a warrant. Uh, a police officer saw him and said, hey, that's a guy that's supposed to be in prison. And he was put into prison. And that's actually when they took his DNA sample. And that's when we got the notification that we did have a match. So the police officer that saw him probably had no knowledge of Katie's case, correct? He recognized him from being a suspect in another crime. He was never a suspect in Katie's case before that DNA match. He was never connected in any way. No one had ever suspected him. If we hadn't gotten that DNA match, he would still not be, and you know, would not have faced justice for Katie's rape. You know, over the years, I've talked to so many crime victims who describe that there's not really a sense of closure because you you don't have that loved one one back. Um, but that there are moments where you feel some sense of, of justice. How did you feel when Katie's main, the, 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 the suspect in Katie's murder was identified and you knew that there would be a trial and you know most likely a conviction? How, how, how did you feel at, the, at that moment? The only way I can describe it is there was, I felt like a weight had been lifted off of me. And um, I can tell you that it was three years and three months before we got that DNA match from the time Katie was killed. I had decided that we may ne- we might never know who or why or how he, that person might never face justice. And I had decided I had to move on with my life. Whether, you know, if, if we never found him, And when they did, and especially during the sentencing hearing, because he did confess, he did plead guilty, and we had a 45-minute sentencing hearing, and when that judge gave him every minute he could legally give him Uh to serve in prison, I felt the most tremendous relief. It was like resolution. It's not closure, Uh but it's tremendous relief. Were you able to speak in court at his sentencing? Yes. Yes. I was able to speak as well as my husband, my son did, and also uh, Katie's roommate did. And I think that was, that was a very healing process. When America's Most Wanted came to New Mexico, and I had traveled with, with the show all over the country uh, for many, many years, and when we came to do Katie's case, I remember you and I having a conversation you wanted to to do something. This was, you know, before obviously before um, the main suspect was identified. We we had a, a really important conversation about trying to make a difference um, in Katie's memory, and we talked about legislation that wasn't really really moving forward and needed needed someone to to take it on. Do you remember that conversation? I remember that conversation, and and I think that I told you that when the Amanda, the captain that was in charge of Katie's case, 
talked to us and he explained to us that they had found this DNA evidence under her fingernails. And then he explained the whole CODA system to me, which I really Mm -hmm. didn't know anything about. And he explained that that evidence had been uploaded into CODIS and that once a week it would be cross-referenced against the offenders in the database to look for a match. I just made this offhand comment that this man was so such a monster that he'd probably be arrested for something else. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when they took his fingerprints and his photographs, they'd swap his cheek and we'd have him. And Captain Jones said, oh, no, J.N., it's illegal in New Mexico and almost every other state to do that. And that was what planted the seed in my head. You know, it was like, what do you mean it's illegal? And so I started doing research, and I think I had done a little bit of research by the time I talked to you, but not the full amount that I did. Um, And I had just decided that I wanted to change those laws. I wanted to make it legal and mandatory that when someone was arrested for a felony, that they would swab their cheek and put that into the national DNA database. Well, I can only imagine that that speaking to that captain and 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 thinking, yeah, this this guy will get caught right away. It must have just felt like just a huge, huge punch in your gut to get that information. That's exactly what it felt like. I was I was astounded. I couldn't believe it. I thought, what what do you mean it's illegal? And you know, I just and I couldn't get that out of my head. And that's when I started doing research. I looked up everything I could on the internet. I called people. I actually talked to some of the people that designed the CODA system to ask them why they thought it was illegal. I talked to legislators. I talked to law enforcement, other victims. Um, it 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 was a passion to me to do this research. And so I did that for two years. And finally, I decided, you know, the time for research is over. The time for action. We need to do something. Jan, you mentioned DNA evidence being put into uh, a system called CODIS. What is CODIS? Well, CODIS is the Combined DNA Index System, and it's called Combined because it uh, there's actually local databases, state databases, and the national database, and they all share information. And I mean, to to put it as succinctly as I can, crime scene DNA evidence. Uh, they create a profile that has 20 markers, and those mm-hmm. markers have no genetic information. Uh, they're just numbers, and then they can get that when they swab a cheek when they when someone is arrested that has the same profile. And when they put that into the database, if all of those numbers match, there is only a chance of one in a quintillion, which is a one followed by 18 zeros, that wow. that is not correct. So that, what that means is that that person was at the crime scene, at the very least. Um, if it, in my, like in my daughter's case, it's where she scratched and got that blood and skin under mm-hmm. her fingernails. That wasn't a, an abandoned cigarette or, an, you know, yeah. that was on her body. So when that matches, you identify the perpetrator and you give much more weight to a court case to find that person guilty. You hear CODIS mentioned um, in, in many crime TV shows, and my understanding is that it's maintained by the FBI, which is, yes, it is. you know, a, a great law enforcement organization. Yes, it is. And I can tell you, I have become very uh, 
actually good friends with the people that manage CODIS and the National Database. And their, their rules and their regulations and the way they run it is so incredible. Um, you know, CODIS went live in 1998 and there has not been one misuse in all these years. There's been not one breach of information. So well run and it, you know, there's so many rules and regulations that I am very confident in, in this system. Well, it's hard to believe that, you know, collecting DNA would be considered illegal. Well, after that, you embarked on a crusade that has likely changed thousands of lives and probably has Katie looking down on you saying, keep going, mom. I want to talk to you about the work that you've been doing since Katie's murder to save more kids and put more bad guys behind bars. And I'm going to do that right after this break. My guest today is not a police officer, but her work has led to the apprehension of hundreds, if not thousands of criminals, and has helped save countless lives, many of them children's. Jan, earlier in the show, you opened up about your 22-year-old daughter, Katie's life, her murder, and how her killer was eventually caught. And you told us about the DNA evidence that led to his capture. Can you give us just an explanation for people who don't know? What's what's DNA evidence? What is that? Well, every cell in your body has DNA. It's, you know, it's what makes you you. Uh, It's the blueprint of who you are. And it's found in saliva, it's found in blood, it's found in skin cells, it's found in just every cell. And so when, when a crime is committed, many times the perpetrator's DNA is left behind. And as the DNA science has evolved, it takes, it's taken less and less and less to be able to get a full profile. And so that DNA evidence means that when, like, when the match happens, that is that person. Um, so it's just, it's an incredible science. It is, it is quite simply the truth. You know, I, I think most people know, probably from watching television, <laughs> unless they've been arrested themselves, that when, when someone is arrested, they have a mugshot taken, their, their fingerprints are taken. If, if DNA is taken, does, does that mean that someone has to have you know, a needle put in their arm or a hair follicle or have some skin scraped off? Like what, what's the process? It's called a buckle swab. And basically it's, it's a specialized Q-tip that just goes inside the cheek and it's rubbed several times. And that gets the, the cells that they need in order to build that profile. And that, I think that's it. That's it. And actually I've, I've been there when they've been training people to do it. And I actually watched them uh, train for the DNA collection. And then I've watched them train for fingerprinting and fingerprinting is a much more arduous process than the mm-hmm. DNA collection. Yeah. It, it just, it's surprising to me that this isn't just something that's, that's automatic. And yet there, there are people out there who say this is, this is controversial um, to take DNA from someone who's arrested, but you know, we're, we're in a time now where we use technology, we use science f- for everything, for, for, you know, for good reasons and, and for crime solving reasons. Why do you think some people think it's controversial to require DNA at arrest? 
Well, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, for one thing, people think that what's going into that database is the same thing that you get back from, say, Ancestry.com or 23andMe, mm-hmm. which is your whole genetic profile, everything about you. But the CODA system was set up only to use these 20 non-coding markers that have no genetic information. And I'm so sure of that, that my actual DNA profile, and that would be 40 numbers because there's two numbers for each marker, is printed on the back of my business card because I know there's nothing private about me in that profile. It's, it's, these are non-coding markers. I mean, even a PhD in genetics couldn't look at those 40 numbers and tell anything about me other than I'm female because they do include the marker that says whether, you know, your gender. So when you were told by that, that captain that, that taking DNA is just, you know, legal in some places, but illegal in, in other places. And then, and then you actually found out that, that the country is basically, you know, 50 different criminal justice systems and one federal system and you knew that you had so much to accomplish uh, and that you know to make the DNA initiative that you were on embarking on to make it mean- meaningful you'd have to literally go state to state um, and in some cases you know beg lawmakers to do the right thing for victims H- how did that make you feel and what did you do well, it was kind of an interesting process. We decided to go to our state legislature in New Mexico first, mainly because, you know, that's where we live and we, yeah. we knew our representative very well. And we did get it passed in New Mexico and we were so thrilled. And then we thought, well, you know, New Mexico was the sixth state to actually allow arrestee DNA testing. And Only the sixth. It was the sixth. And we thought, gee, that means there's 44 more states. Um, but we really didn't know how to go about it. So we kind of had to figure that out. And what we decided to do was to write a letter to every state legislator in every state that didn't have arrestee DNA testing, tell them our story, explain why we thought it was important, and say, you know, if you want us to come help you get this law passed, we'll come. And we started getting phone calls and invitations. And so I started traveling around the country um, testifying and talking to legislators and, you know, just doing everything I could to get these laws passed. And had you been involved in getting any type of, any types of laws passed prior to Katie's murder? Oh, goodness, no. And and what's embarrassing to say is that I don't know what I was doing during my high school civics class, but I hmm. really had no idea about how it worked. I really didn't know. And I was very fortunate when I went to the New Mexico State Legislature to have people that were willing to sit down and explain the process to me in great detail. Because it's not what most people think. And so it was quite an education. And so you said that when when Katie's case was first being investigated, there were there were only, I guess, five because you got your state as the sixth right um collecting dna what about at the federal level well that's interesting too at uh, at the federal level katie was murdered in uh, august of 2003 and we were actually at the new mexico state legislature in january of 2006 that's when we went to new mexico 
and it was in January of uh, 2006 that President, uh, excuse me, President Bush signed into law. It's called the DNA Fingerprint Act, and it's the federal law. And what the federal law requires is that anytime anyone is arrested for a federal crime, which there aren't very many actual federal crimes, but their DNA was to be taken. And also in that in that law was that if anyone is in this country illegally and they are mm-hmm. detained, that they were to take their DNA. Yeah, so, so federal crimes like transporting someone who's being kidnapped across state lines or terrorism, there's just a, a, a very narrow... Uh, amount of crimes counterfeiting yeah yeah so you so you wrote letters to all the states and the states just passed the laws i mean i'm sure that there were victim families like yourselves who reached out when when they knew there was something that they could do in their states and and got all the states to pass the laws right well we haven't gotten all the states yet we've only gotten 31 there are some states that still will not pass it um, and like I said, basically, um, they would call me and I would get on a plane and, and go and talk to legislators one-on-one because I think that's the best way to do it. And then, I, of course, I would also testify in committee hearings. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's some states that it took years. I mean, I, I went to Rhode Island five years before it was passed. Oklahoma took eight years. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's a, a perseverance thing. And finally, I think people, and then we've we've had so many many incredible results. And uh, the New Mexico Crime Lab has given me a lot of statistics and information that I can use when I testify. So we've been, you know, we can prove that it works. Yeah, to me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I'm obviously a a victim's advocate and I care about justice. I mean, what's... What are these states' problems? What are the legislators' problems? I mean, sh- shouldn't caring about crime victims be one of their number one concerns as a legislator representing the people? Like, why do you think this this is not just immediately passed in every single state? Well, as I said, I think there. First of all, there's a lot of misinformation, and you know that's that's what's important about what I do is I can go in and educate people to the the facts how it really works. So I think that's number one. Um, number two. There are people that just feel like there it is wrong for the government to have any personal information on us, and they're just offended by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that to be it's real interesting. The far left generally has a problem with that, and the far right, hmm. the, the middle, doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Then also, there's the cost problem. You know, it's not cheap. Actually, in the long run, it saves more money than it costs. We have uh, academic studies that have shown that, but it's just sometimes hard, especially when states have very tight budgets, to convince them that it's worth spending the money to do this. Anyone who thinks that there isn't already a huge amount of information out there about them is is misinformed because mm-hmm. anyone who's on social media knows that the, the ads that they're being targeted are directly related to things they might be shopping for online. There is a tremendous amount of data that's out there on individuals. They use it for elections, etc. Um, your nonprofit DNAsaves.org really has helped you create a, a platform to work on this legislation. So knowing that not every single state um, and that there's only 31 now 
that are collecting DNA upon arrest, what are the what are the what states are close? Like, what are you working on right now? You, you mentioned to me before the show that you've been working on Washington State for seven years, and you said you know Rhode Island took five years. Are are you close in in any other states right now? The states that have refused to do it are, you know, a lot of them. We I don't want to say we've given up on, but we've we've kind of backed off and said, okay, let's go find the states that are more willing to do this. And one of the things we've been very involved in is getting it what I call the full law. Because there are some states that say, okay, we'll take DNA when someone's arrested for a violent crime or a Mm -hmm. sexual assault, but not for what they call lower level felonies. And that was what New Mexico did in 2006. And then we went back in 2011 and said, we want it taken for all felony arrests. And that was very difficult to sell, you know, that if you have someone arrested for receiving stolen property or, or uh, resisting arrest, that you're going to take their DNA. But they did pass that law in New Mexico in 2011. And what really amazed us was that the match rate after we passed to go to all felony arrests went up by 83%. Incredible. And that the first year after that went into effect, we identified five murderers in New Mexico, and we would have missed four of those if we hadn't expanded the law because we identified those murderers from those lower level crimes. And so we have decided that the states that haven't passed the full law, that we're going to go back with the statistics we have and try to pass the full law. So we've been working on that. And we have been successful in doing that in several states. We now have 18 states that have the full law. And the last few states that have passed from scratch have gone immediately to the full law because of all these, you know, success stories and statistics and examples that we have. So right now we're working real hard to get the full law passed in Texas and Missouri and uh, Mississippi. We're also working in West Virginia to try to get, they don't have any law. And uh, North Carolina is another one that only has the partial law. We're working there. Yeah, I mean, for a legislator to assume that, you know, someone who might be committing a violent crime is not also committing lower level crimes. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. There's no there's no base in, in criminology fact or any research on that. And so, I mean, in, in Katie's case, you know, he the suspect had been arrested for burglary, even though when he broke into that home, probably there was... He had more on his mind than just burglary. But right. I mean, that's the perfect example of how the lower level crimes are able to help solve the the, the more violent crimes. And legislators should want to be behind this because when the conviction rates and arrest rates go up, they can take credit and they're getting reelected. So it, it, it makes sense to me. I don't understand why legislators wouldn't wouldn't be totally behind this. Well, one of the things I think is very interesting is that some of the legislators that were very opposed when we were there working on it. Um, Later, after the state passed it and after they saw the results, they've become proponents. I think that's very interesting. But it just, it works, you know, and that's what we've been able to see. We've had um, over 2,000 matches in New Mexico since we first started. And, you know, we only have 2 million people and we've had over 2,000 matches. So that's just amazing. And that's, you know, in a little bitty state. California is actually getting an average of 10 matches every day on their DNA database. 
So it, you know, it's so powerful, and it, it just breaks my heart that, that we're not using this in the way that we should be. The morning of the day that you found out that you had lost Katie, you said that you, 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 you knew it. You woke up feeling something inside you that you had never felt before. But I know that you also have talked about feeling Katie's presence in your life right now, today. Oh, absolutely. Is that what keeps you going? Um, that is a big part of it. I, you know, I talk to her every morning. I go out on my back mm. patio and I talk to her mm-hmm. every morning. And that's a huge part of it. And, and also so many things that I've seen, I, you know, coincidences that just shouldn't have happened that amaze me. And I just feel like that's a reinforcement that we're doing the right thing. But the thing that really keeps me going is having met other mothers whose daughters would still be alive if Mm -hmm. these laws had been in place in their states. You know, I've gotten to be very close friends with one mother. We worked together in in Nevada to get it passed. And if we first went to Nevada to try to get it passed in 2007 and could not get it passed, if it had passed in 2007 we can show where her daughter would still be alive because the man that killed her had raped before and there was evidence, there was DNA evidence, and then he was arrested for a felony. And if they had swabbed his cheek, they would have matched it to the rapes and he most probably would have been in prison and not free to rape and murder Breonna Dennison in Nevada. And so Mm -hmm. that's what keeps me going is that I know this saves lives. It it doesn't just solve crimes, it prevents crimes, and it saves lives. It prevents rapes. I've gotten to know so many rape victims, and I've seen the trauma it does in their lives. And this prevents that. So that's what keeps me going. And when you see families, when you're in these states that you know have done the right thing, and you see full families there enjoying a picnic or going boating or, you know, walking on the street, you have no idea, but that could be one of the families whose lives you've impacted because of the work you've done in those states. You know, my husband and I say that we will never know the names or mm-hmm. the you know the faces of those that have been saved from rape or murder. We won't know who they are, but we know they exist. We know they exist. And that's our blessing. You mentioned Brianna Dennison and her mom. If, if people want to support your mission with getting DNA upon arrest legislation passed properly in, in every state in this country, how can they help you? Well, the main thing that we need is their voices. We need people to call their legislators, especially if we have a bill going. You know, um, we, if they can call their legislators and say, hey, we support this. You know, I can tell you, uh, California, we couldn't get this through. This could not get through the legislature in California. It could not. So they did a voters initiative, and it passed mm-hmm. 62 to uh, 38%. I mean, wow. what a margin. People, I've never met one person that when I talk to them doesn't say, well, I thought they were doing this. Why aren't they doing this? I mean, people are for it. It's just for some reason the legislators are hesitant so it, what we need is voices. We need, and yeah. usually what we do when we start working in the state, we, we, 
you know, try to get the message out there through email, through social media. Okay, we've got a bill going in this state. If you live in this state or know anyone in this state, here, you know, here's how you can call your legislator. Here's, and we have on our, our uh, website a way for you to find out who your legislators are. So that's the most important thing is their voices um, because that really changes how legislators vote. So if people want to go to dnasaves.org, can they leave their information? So when you need those voices in those states, you can, you can reach out to them to get them. The the best way to do that is to email me and my email is, you know, on dnasaves.org. And I have a whole collection of people that have said, Hey, I live in, uh, I live in Iowa. We don't have the law in Iowa. I want to help. And so we keep those and then we, we kind of engage them when we're working to not only for them to call their legislators, but for them to tell everybody they know and get them to call. And it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Incredible information. Jan, it's an honor to know you uh, and to call you a friend. Thank you for everything that you're doing for this country and for anyone who's been touched by crime. And there are millions of crime victims everywhere. And Avery, I want to say thank you, because from day one, when we met you, you have been such a help and have done so much to help us. And I I just want to say thank you so much for that. Thank you. I'm I'm here in any way that I can help. And uh, I wish you continued success. And I look forward to having you back on the show and talking more about DNA evidence and how more justice is is being served and and, and achieved for, for more families than than ever before and and that the future is is better for crime victims so thank you thank you well thank you Avery. i appreciate so much for having me on today thank you thanks for listening and please download and listen to the next episode of making the case crimes against kids when we'll hear more incredible stories and learn more about how to keep our children safer stay safe out there bye-bye